0: Welcome, everybody, to Moadon Ivri Club Hebrew. Fall session starting. Very happy to have everybody here. Um, When we finished at the end of this summer term, we actually got all the way through the book of 1 Samuel. And those are all available on iTunes U. And so if you want uh, some more narrative text to look at, feel free to do that. Um, This quarter, for a change of pace... I thought that we would do some poetry, some psalms, and uh, it will give us a more, more challenging look at Hebrew, uh, but also you know, some very different themes and things that we've been reading. We're going to go actually through the so-called penitential psalms. There's seven of them, and uh, so I think it'll be fun to go through them because we'll see some of the themes that connect them as we go, and then we can also look at... Um, the vocabulary. Is the vocabulary similar? Is the structure similar? Uh, both the structure of the psalm as a whole and uh, the way that the psalmist David or uh, another psalmist argues through them. And it also give us a significant group of texts that you guys will have under your hat for preaching come the Lenten season. Makes a perfect Wednesday Lenten series, you know look at each of the different seven penitential psalms. So the first one actually is Psalm 6. And for those of you who welcome everybody who are newcomers, very happy to have you with us. And here, uh, as in the past, it's a little different than lectionary at lunch um, because uh, I will pause after each verse as we did in Greek, as uh, Greek club is. And you guys can ask any questions you want on the text. Feel free to do that. And sometimes I'll ask questions Uh, and you guys feel free to answer them so we'll proceed that way alright and so we'll get as far as we can today if we don't get through the whole psalm we'll pick it up again right where we left off next Thursday okay so we're at psalm 6 uh, as again usually characterized as a lament verse 1 I'll read it and translate but I'm not going to spend too much time on it lamen zeach bin Ginot Al Hasheminit mizmor la-david it's usually translated to the choir director or director of choirs uh, now you have a bunch of terms no one knows what they mean. Uh, <laughs> Negi note is usually translated uh, on uh, a stringed instruments or with stringed instruments, but again, no one's quite sure of that term. neat is the word for eight. Eight. And so there's usually something that follows it, like the eighth day or something like that. You don't have that here. And so if you look like in Kaylor Baumgartner's lexicon, there's like five different possibilities. Eighth note... Uh, an instrument with eight strings, or two of the most popular, or another name for a melody. And at the end of that entrance, it goes. Uh, no one really. It goes number one, two of the most likely, but no one really knows. So you have this whole end So uh, it seems to be some kind of a melody. And you'll see a lot of these in the Psalm titles. Uh, directions for the tune that has been lost. All right. And then Mizmor is usually translated as Psalm. This is one of the most common. Words in the headings of the Psalms, the other one being, does anyone know? David, sheer? David is one, of a Shear is the other category, right? David another obviously common word. Shear. Shear is usually translated as song versus mizmor psalm. That's what you kind of a basic convention, but again, sometimes they occur in the same heading. Uh, and so, again, what the precise distinctions are, no one's sure. And then the, notice the Ledavid. Uh, Thalamid could mean a lot of things, it could mean for David, right? Uh, it's normally translated as by David. So it's usually translated as a uh, lament of authorship. All right? And so make fun of Greek categories. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to impress you great, right off the bat, Jeff. So, all right? So don't ask me any questions about verse 1 because I would say, oh, no one knows. <laughs> but are there any questions on verse 1? <laughs> all right, let's go to verse 2. Yahweh, Al Be'a Peka Tokichene, Be'al Teyas O Yahweh, not in your wrath do not rebuke me. That is from the root Yakach, it's a hip feel? imperfect. So not in your wrath rebuke me, and not in your chamataka again a, a synonym, and not in your anger. Teyas Reini is a PL imperfect from Yasar, to chastise. So notice that you have a number of synonyms here between the two kola of the verse. Yakach and Yasart, and they're variously translated as to um, rebuke, to chastise, to discipline, uh, to punish, something like that. And then off and Chama as well. Alright, notice uh, one kind of thing about the syntax. Usually the verb follows immediately the Al. But notice that it's the be'a, peka, and ba, ka that's perhaps being emphasized here. So you actually have it coming between the negative al and the verb. All right? So notice that. So he's really, if you're reading it, O Lord, not in your anger. Do not rebuke me in your anger. And do not chastise me in your wrath. Okay? Um, any questions about any forms of verse 2? Alright, verse 3. Chaneini yawe ki ani. Yahweh uh, ki nivhalu be gracious to me. What's the root? Khanan, uh, Very good. Khanan. To be gracious to and it's imperative. So be gracious to me, O Lord. Ki umla ani. For I am frail. This is just an adjective and it's, I, I think this is the only place it occurs. Uh, maybe one other place but I'm not sure. Uh, for I am frail. Repha'eni, here is a call imperative with the first common singular suffix. Heal me, O Lord, for nivhalu. Everybody see the root? Bahal. And here it's a nifal perfect. To, and it means to be terrified in most instances. The subject is asamai, my bones. Right, so, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are terrified. Right, it's kind of an interesting choice of words, an unusual choice given the context, right? Um, and uh, again, we could talk a lot about what he's uh, trying to get across here, but notice he, you have this uh, anger of God in the background. His own physical frailty seems to be emphasized in the healing and the I am frail, but now notice there's kind of a terror underlying his experience as well. Okay? Uh, any questions about any of the forms? So far, so good. We, we slide downhill in a couple of verses verses. <laughs> okay, verse 5. Venashi nivhala Ve'at Yahweh Admatai. My soul, my nefesh, my innermost being, niv halameod is very terrified. Notice you have the bahal again. He's repeating vocabulary here. Um, again, the nifal perfect from bahal the nafash is the subject so my soul is terrified how does meod function? adverbally adverbally right notice that it's a substantive it means power might but uh, commonly occurs as an adverb as Hebrew very often makes adverbs out of nouns and they have other strategies because they don't have a lot of kind of adverbs like we do in our language so and my soul or my inmost being is very terrified so notice how he emphasizes this my bones are terrified, and my soul is very terrified. Okay? The at, notice the spelling. That's the the second person pronoun, you, but what's missing? The hey at the end. The common way of writing is with the hey, and if you look at the Kare reading uh, on the sideline, on the margin there, you can see that uh, uh, that's what the Masoretes have preserved in either other manuscripts or just want to tell you that, but again, it's you know you see it occur. It's it's kind of a spelling convention. So you would just it, it's just the way that the word is spelled. And as for you, O Lord, Admatai, how long? All right. Um, I, maybe if we have time, I'll talk a little bit more about what's going on here theologically. But notice what's missing in your kind of logic sense when he says, "But you, O Lord, how long?" What do you kind of are, what are you as a reader begging to hear? Okay, how long what? Yeah, how long are you going to be silent? How long are you going to punish me? How long am I going to feel this? And you don't get it. And notice what it does to you as a reader. All those things go through your mind. It's kind of how long. And you yourself are kind of waiting for uh, this answer. And again, notice how it's a way of conveying the psalmist's pain and agony because he's kind of talking. You know, it, it, the speech just kind of breaks off, as you might expect for someone that. Uh, you already see is in a lot of pain. All right. Verse five. Shuva Yahweh chazanafshi, hoshi'ani lama anchastika. Turn, O Lord, Shuva. But uh, notice that this is a call imperative. What's unusual about the form? And we saw this sometimes in Samuel too. It's, it's got the hay at the end, right? Turn, O Lord. Same now here. You have a pl imperative. Chatzla. again, a hay at the end. Hayes normally occur on what kind of volatile forms? The cohortatives. Cohortatives, right? But you can also find them on imperatives. And a lot of linguists suggest that the function is, and they get this from the Akkadian, has a form, a similar form, that uh, when the speaker especially wants to emphasize action directed towards the benefit of the speaker, you'll see the hay. And so notice that, I mean, that fits here. Uh, whether that's true or not, I mean, it's kind of debatable, but uh, that's a, at least some people see it in Akkadian. This, it's called a ventive ending. And uh, so, uh, you know, if that's the case, that's what he's emphasizing. Act kind of on my behalf. So, turn, O Lord, Chalsa, deliver, draw out, uh, Nefesh, my soul, my, I don't know how you want to translate that, I'm always kind of at a loss here. Hosheini, what's the root? Yes. Yasha, Yasha. Hifil from Yasha, again an imperative. Save me on account of Chasdeka, your Chesed. As soon as you hear that word, as a psalmist, uh, as a reader, kind of a whole history and theology is evoked. Right? It's kind of it's a hugely pregnant word, so to speak. Um, and so you know the glosses in English, uh, on account of your faithfulness, on account of your love, on account of your grace, on account of your loyalty. Um, a lot of those are in place, and it's really hard for us to kind of get an English word that fits it here. All right. Any, any questions through five? Okay, good. Verse six: Ki'an ba'mavet zikreka bishol me yodalak. For there is not in death your remembrance. Okay. Notice what? a uh, Again, we see this also in narrative, but here in Poetry, what a compressed expression that Bamabit Zikreka. For there is not in death your remembrance. Someone give me a longhand English of that. Just very generally. Remember you. Yeah. No one remembers you when they die. See, notice that you have kind of two action nouns here. And uh um, so he's, he's making a case here. Notice how his kind of argument in his attempts to persuade God has kind of changed here. And he's using all of a sudden a kind of more logical reasoning. So his first reason is, hey, if I die, you know, I'm this general truth notice. No one remembers you when you die. All right? Yes? Is, it, uh, is that word for remembrance always going to be objective like that? Uh. Where it's always like, if it's your remembrance, it's people remembering you. Oh, no, I wouldn't say necessarily. Your memory of. Right. It okay. can be either way. Um, it can, yeah, it just depends on the, the The suffix, whether it's the subject of the verbal action or the object, will probably depend on the context that it appears. Okay. Okay. In Sheol, who, um, yoda, this is from yada, to praise or confess. Who will praise you, or who will confess you? Right, we as Lutherans like confess. Confess you. All right. Uh, notice how, uh, just kind of something for you guys to keep in mind. It uses the word sheol here in parallel with Mavit, death, and almost in almost every case of sheol, you see it parallel with death or with the pit, shachat, or bore. And so, um, you know, you see it's kind of commonly accepted by more critical scholars that Sheol is referring to the underworld where disembodied souls go. But there's a really good article. The short treatment is is in the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. That's a two-volume brown set on Sheol. But also Philip Johnston has both an article and a book. And... uh, so in the article, Theological wordbook of the Old Testament, he says that Shaol, the meaning, when you look at it in context, and I kind of look most of these up and it's true, is parallel with the grave or with physical death. All right? Johnston wants to make the case that most of the, them occur in very negative instances, in a place you don't want to go. and So he's willing to say that uh, a good translation is hell. All right. and he has a whole treatment. He has an article that's short, but also the book Shades of Sheol in which he kind of makes that case. And the reason I tell you this is because, uh, just to tell you that there are places that make the counter argument to the claim that Shaol is just a disembodied place. And that's kind of important theologically, of course, because critical scholars suggest that the idea of an afterlife only developed late in Judaism and that the Old Testament doesn't know that. So there are scholars that. Uh, have counter arguments to that. Sure. And couldn't it just be physical death? Yes. Any see, the physical death, the grave, and no reference to right. anything beyond that. Just not talking, about, just it. Not talking it. about it here, right? Exactly. All right. Um, okay, now verse 7 and 8. Um, things get a little tight here. Yagati, <laughs> I love to the, notice the, uh, the sound that kind of. Uh, are almost getting a rhyme there. Yagati be anchati, ashe be mitati, bedimati, RC, Amset. Right? <laughs> you guys, did you guys recognize any word here? Maybe Lila stuck out. After. <laughs> Most of these you don't have to put on vocab cards because they only occur here. Um, uh, yagati is a call from Yaga. I am weary with Anchati. So I am weary with my groaning. Anchata, um, Ankha means to groan. So I am weary with my groaning. Now Asche is a ver- is a rare word. It means to swim. And mitati is bed. Alright. Or to swim, or here this is a hitfield to uh, flood. So I flood my bed. Beko kolila. Um, now notice that uh, you could have translate either way. I flood my bed every night. Or, since you know, a lot of times the definite article is left out, anyway. In Hebrew, you'll see translations. I flood my bed um, throughout the night. Let's see? Okay. But be- dimati with my tear. And here again, seems to be a collective. With my tears are see my couch. I melt from massa. I could feel from massa to melt. So notice, I flood my bed throughout the night or every night with my tears, my couch, I melt. What kind of figures of speech are those? Metaphor? metaphor. Yeah, you got hyperbole, you got some metaphor going, but hyperbole, you know, notice how he's pressing the case, and what is he, why do you use hyperbole? because he wants to express the depth of his sorrow, the depth of his pain and grief, see? So I flood my bed every night with tears. I melt it. Uh, that's a lot of water, see? Uh, verse 8, here's another rare word. Ashesha, enai, atka, the cold zora I notice he's playing with that sound. It's kind of interesting. Ashesha is a call, a third feminine from... And it means probably something like it's only used here to waste away. So my eye wastes away from kaas, from vexation. Atka, this means to grow old. Atka, to grow old. It grows old, bekol, um, because of or on account of all Zorari, all my enemies. Now, notice this is an interesting intrusion, not intrusion, an interesting twist that the psalm takes, because up to this point what have you been thinking is wrong with the psalmist? Sickness. Something physical, right? A physical sickness, a physical illness, some kind of pain and torment. Notice he's assuming that God is behind it, that God is angry. Uh, and now all of a sudden you get the introduction of enemies here. So all of a sudden it seems, you know, when you hear the word enemies you're thinking, oh, this is an external force. So by juxtaposing those two ideas, notice how the meaning of enemies is kind of enlarged here. All right? As you're going through the song. Okay, does anyone have any questions about that verse? That's kind of the toughest verse of the whole thing. And again, you don't have to remember too many of the words. Okay, verse 9. The oh, I'm sorry. The, yeah. the second verb as well? I mean, yes, I think so. Right, and it's weird. A lot of scholars have trouble. That's why you see a, a possible emendation of Akka. Okay. To grow old just seems like a strange thing to say of the eye. Yeah. But again, he's using very striking right. metaphor, uh, language here. And, and so, rather than amending, I think we should take it as it is. And, and, you know, the eye is kind of... As soon as you hear that, you're thinking eye as kind of a synecdoche for the... Whole body for the health of the body. When the eye is shining, you're young. You know that's kind of a. When the eye grows dull, uh, you're in big trouble. And so that that kind of is, are the images that he brings to mind here. Right. Verse nine. kol ki shama Again, another imperative. Turn from me, all you workers of iniquity. Notice how he's turning now to personal enemies. It's a it's a very surprising way the song is going poale is a parsable from paal used substantively for shama either Yahweh has heard uh, the sound of my weeping or certainly Yahweh does hear the sound of my weeping alright as opposed to everyone else who thinks Yahweh has deserted him he could be kind of asserting the uh, fact that Yahweh does indeed hear okay verse 10 shama Yahweh techeinati Yahweh has heard, or does hear again, continuing that, my, uh, taking now, my plea for mercy. From Chana again, from Canaan, Yahweh um, Tefilati Yekach. Yahweh receives my prayer. Very often in poetry, this causes a lot of trouble. You see this switch in tenses from perfect to imperfect. Uh, how much force you give it. See, notice you could interpret it as a preterite which would be a, translated as simple past like all the rest of them. Yahweh has heard my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh has received my prayer. Or you could translate it with more uh, Yahweh, you know, the other ones, more past tense. Yahweh has done this. Yahweh is receiving. See, one scholar suggests that the change actually does have a certain force. The trouble is it occurs in so many contexts that uh, you're always wondering. And that's why translation is interpretation right from step one. And I can't, you know, it's hard to know definitively what's the best way to uh, proceed here with this switch all the time. Questions? So what's the yeah. last form? Yikach is from Lakach, a call imperfect. And uh, the commas uh, is there because as soon as you have that oh. so pursuit, you stop and it lengthens the vowel. About the Right. Okay, um, one more verse, notice the psalmist's confidence. Yevoshu um, me'od, kol raga. This is from both, to be ashamed. Let them be ashamed. And let them be terrified me'od. Notice he borrows the language that he was feeling up in verse 4. All my enemies... So let all my enemies be ashamed. Or may all my enemies be ashamed. And may they be terrified, terribly terrified. Now, Ode. Alright? Let them turn. Let them be ashamed. Raga. This means a moment. And here it's used adverbally. In a moment. Or quickly. Or swiftly. Or something like that. See? So notice how the psalm um, ends in this note of confidence, especially as you move to verse 9, 10, and 11. It his faith which, uh, you know, is at a down, you know, downward slope in the first part of the psalm, reexerts itself, and he has this confidence in Yahweh. So notice that the psalmist actually seems to go through from a death to resurrection movement, and I think we'll see that as we look at the penitential psalms, um, and as readers of the psalm, notice how I think that's the movement that kind of we go through as well, as we contemplate uh, his own position and ours relative to it. Yeah, yeah wh- why is that? It is, is it possible? Would, would they write like part of it at one point and then like the second half? Oh, that's point? a good question. Is a lot like, of scholars well, say that. You know, uh, it seems very I, like right. tension. Right. Or is he just realizing God's salvation? Like what's... Um, I think, here's how I kind of handle that question. Critics will say, yeah, the second party came back later after he heard something from the priest of pardon or forgiveness or after his prayer was answered. Well, I mean, I think you're trying to wed the psalm too closely and specifically to something that was was actually happening in his life, but rather what he's doing is giving you this poetic experience. I, I don't know what he's constructing a world for you to think about and to enter in. Yeah, for a lot of reasons. So you take it as true poetry, and poetry lives with this kind of tension and this kind of ambiguity. And so notice what he doesn't try to do, what poetry doesn't try to do is solve problems, but probe them and think about them. And and so it it causes you to engage yourself theologically because... You have to think about Now, how can this be true? How did this happen, see? And uh, so we're always reading within our own framework of understanding. And And, of course, see, as a Christian reader and Lutheran reader, you know, I really resonate with this. Boy, look, you know, look at how God actually delivers, gives this guy this experience of agony and then joy and ecstasy and confidence. It's kind of emblematic of You know, repentance and faith, uh, contrition and faith is turned that even Christ himself experienced death and resurrection, which experience has given us in baptism and in the daily life of a Christian uh, who lived lives under the cross. And so, rather than trying to explain it that way, live with the poetry and and think about it uh, in those terms. These guys were great theologians, see, and when you're theologians, you're thinking about God... uh, within their particular narrative and, you know, the, within their understanding of who God is and what he has done for his people. And we don't want to rob that by being so caught up with, oh, I wonder where David was exactly when this happened and how did all... I just Those are kind of sterile questions. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, you talked about the similarity in the form and, and word usage. Uh, at yeah. uh, The beginning of it brought... 38 to 9 yeah and it's all almost the same way yep there's a number of them we do number? and we'll see well we go to 32 I don't think 38 is listed as a penitential song okay that's a moral wisdom alright alright we'll see you next week thanks so <laughs> much